So today we're chatting with Esther Stanford Cosse, an internationally acclaimed reparationist, jurist consult, community advocate, and radio broadcaster. Welcome, Esther. Thank you. I wanted to begin with two simple questions. If you could tell us a bit about your background and second, the projects on which you're working, specifically the UK-initiated African reparations campaign, Stop the Maangamizi, led by PARCO, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe. Thank you. So in terms of my background, I would say I've got a legal background. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a Juris Consult, which is a specialist uh, lawyer, if you like, in jurisprudence, which is the science and the philosophy of law, in terms of uh, its application not sort of formal statute law, but looking at the philosophical underpinnings of legal systems and very concerned with notions of justice. So I got involved with the campaign for reparations, for African reparations, as a result really of my legal interest. Um, when I joined the movement around the year 2000, I was working for a black lawyers organisation and I felt I could use some of my legal knowledge, training and skills at the time that I was developing to advance the cause for reparations. Um, since that time, I've developed my thinking and understanding about how we utilise law in causes uh, such as reparations for historical injustices of enslavement, colonisation and neo-colonisation. And I've been very much uh, directing my energies towards social movement building, which is a sort of different approach to lawyering, what we call movement lawyering or social justice lawyering, which is where people with legal skills and training and backgrounds and insights uh, put those skills in service of social and political movements and causes. Now I'm currently completing my PhD in reparations at the University of Chichester and my PhD is actually in the subject matter of the history of the international social movement for African reparations based in the UK, something that we refer to as the ISMAR. So that's my background. Um, and some of the work that I'm, I mean, I'm involved in many initiatives around African reparations, not only in the UK, mm. but internationally, uh, in the so-called Americas, in the Caribbean, in Africa, mm -hmm. and as well as Europe. And I'm part of many different organisations and coalitions and networks. But my primary organisation is the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe and I'm also the spokesperson for the African Emancipation Day Reparations March Committee which partners with the Stop the Maangamizi We Charge Genocide Ecocide campaign which was originally initiated by PARCO, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe. So just to be clear, mm -hmm. uh, the term Mangamizi, Maangamizi, yes. actually is a key Swahili term 
uh, and it means the African Holocaust and continuum of chattel, colonial and neo-colonial forms of enslavement. So just like Jewish people will talk about a Shoah, Palestinians will talk about the Nakba, mm -hmm. we use the term Ma'angamizi to describe our experience, which is not just a historic experience, it's actually something that is continuing into our present with genocidal and ecocidal impacts and outcomes. Thank you so much for that introduction. So you bring up genocide. I think that's very relevant to the discussion because this conversation is a part of the Genocide a Memorial Day project. Yes. So uh, just a bit of background for those who might not know that the Genocide Memorial Day takes place on the third Sunday of January each year and it was chosen in 2010 to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the end of so-called Operation Cast Lead. Um, which resulted in the death of over 1,200 Palestinians. So this question of genocide and how we conceptualize genocide, I think, uh, should be central to this discussion. Sure. So I wanted to ask, um, how can we conceptualize genocide from a decolonial standpoint? Because obviously not all understandings of genocide respond to the same political and ethical stakes. Um, obviously, December of this year, 2018, marks 70 years since the UN Genocide Convention, the first kind of major effort to define genocide in legal terms. Yes. So what do you make of this legacy of these post-World War II efforts? Well, that's an interesting question because there is, as, as you said, this battle over definition mm -hmm. and who can define and, and what gets accepted and recognized uh, in the world as being a legitimate or authentic genocide. So from a decolonial perspective, and, and from my understanding or overstanding, as we say, in the African heritage community, of how we utilize law, mm -hmm. um, legal processes, um, legal thinking, it has to be from the perspective of those who have been most impacted mm -hmm. by that experience. And the battle for definition is something we have to seize back that power to define our experiences. Mm -hmm. And of course, because of Eurocentrism, because of colonialism, European colonialism in particular, the power structures that maintain official definitions of genocide, as it were, are very resistant mm -hmm. to greater inclusivity of other peoples who are not of Europe, basically. Right. But I always uh, utilize, and certainly in the Stop the Maangamizi, mm -hmm. We Charge Genocide Ecocide campaign, we do believe there is some utility in the, uh, the definition from the 1948 Genocide Convention, mm -hmm. because we also recognize that the coiner of that, uh, Dr. Raphael Lemkin, uh, he was very much concerned with other notions of genocide too. And it's not all of his thinking mm -hmm. around genocide made it into that convention. And so the notion of uh, cultural genocide is really, really important. And recognizing that genocide doesn't necessarily mean the total elimination or extermination of a group, that you can still be in existence to a degree or surviving to a degree, but experiencing a process of group genocide. And there's a really interesting quote from Raphael Lemkin where he says that genocide has two phases. One, the destruction of the national pattern of the oppressed group. Mm -hmm. 
The other, the imposition of the national pattern of the oppressor. And this was from his Axis Rule in Occupied Europe mm -hmm. book in 1944. And so from an African perspective, whilst it's true, and I speak from, from the uh, historical experience, say, of African people, yes. while it is true that chattel enslavement in particular and colonialism uh, also had within them various uh, specific genocides mm -hmm. of African nationalities, ethnicities and communities, uh, the continuum of it remains today. And the, the very fact that we have this campaign, the Stop the Mangamizi campaign, is really a testament to that. So can you speak about the relationship between um or rather the call for reparations in Africa itself and the diaspora and what the relation is. Because uh, the scholar Hakim Adi, who recently uh, wrote a book about the history of Pan-Africanism, he argues that uh, Pan-Africanism in many ways started in, in Britain. He writes about the sons of Africa in the 18th century and campaigns against slavery at that time frame as anti-trafficking. So can you speak a bit to the contributions of of black people in Britain. Um. Sure. Well, there, the, the, in terms of the, the link with uh, the movement in Africa and us here in Britain, uh, it's a kind of um, umbilical, um, like an umbilical cord, okay? It's like the mother, the relationship of the mother to the child. And whilst it is true that, I mean, Hakim, Professor Hakim Adi is actually my PhD supervisor. Um, so whilst it is true that, that most scholarship argues that Pan-Africanism began in the diaspora, if we were to take a decolonial approach to Pan-Africanism, we will see or we will rediscover that Pan-Africanism actually began on the continent of Africa. And so the, the groups that you have mentioned that Professor Adi also uh, researches and writes about, the Sons of Africa, are one of the early groups that I identify in my PhD research that were involved with reparations activism. So if, you, if we look at the, how far back in terms of a UK history, uh, and we're talking about you know, mid-1700s, 1780s and so forth, uh, there were people like Otobo Kugwano, who was an African abolitionist, and he was uh, one of the first published writers in the English language to recognize that the uh, enslavement of African people was really a crime against humanity. And so uh, we don't necessarily think about these early activists as reparationists, but mm. actually when we examine their work on what they were seeking to do, which was not only to expose the wrongs of chattel enslavement, but to work to ensure that it got stopped in terms of various forms of abolition, that is a, a, a reparatory justice. Justice, uh, if you like, task of action, because the the key part, or before we can actually repair, we have to stop the harm. You cannot repair if slavery is still going on, mm -hmm. if oppression is still going on, if genocide is still happening, if anti-black racism and Afrophobia, its specific form that affects people of African descent, is still going on. Then you cannot have repair. Can you speak more? I was going to ask you about this term, Afrophobia. 
So I wanted to ask specifically about the relationship of slavery and colonialism in this regard, because a number of contemporary scholars in the States, uh, for example, Frank Wilderson and Jared Sexton, have pointed out how slavery was referring specifically to the transatlantic slave trade, Mm -hmm. how it's a different kind of rupture than colonialism, the way it's typically understood that the former involves a different grammar of suffering and violence that isn't as contingent on the question of land or other mediators. So this trajectory of thinking has very much popularized anti-blackness as as the main term through which to understand the rupture and violence of slavery. But I've noticed that you speak more frequently in terms of Afrophobic racism. So can you yes, specify what sure. that means? So basically the, the fear uh, of, of, of people and things African, you know, mm. that's essentially what Afrophobia is. And it began with uh, the, the, the chattelization of African people mm. and, and the institution of white supremacy racism and these ideologies that had to justify why whole groups of people were basically trafficked and enslaved and brutalized. So I am aware of, of, of some of these perspectives mm-hmm. around uh, the experience of chattel slavery being something completely different. And uh, But I don't necessarily agree totally with that assertion because I think that some of the ideas coming out of uh, say people in North America who have a different sense of connection to the continent of Africa whereas from uh, the perspective of some of us in the UK who are pan-Africanists and if we look at the history of pan-African organizing in Britain uh, we can see that that the, there have been stronger linkages between our African identity and culture and heritage, uh, whether it was coming via the Caribbean or coming directly from Africa. So that's why in Parco, we talk about a continuum. So yes, there were different experiences, but we cannot see them in total isolation from each other. And I think that uh, there's not enough knowledge that is uh, being produced and there's not enough sharing of knowledges uh, between those who experience chattel enslavement on the continent of Africa as well. A lot of the discourse around reparations has tended to privilege and focus on the diaspora experience. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been sufficient unearthing of African experiences of the Ma'angamizi and and the beginning of it in terms of chattel enslavement. And that's because a lot of our gaze, even when we are thinking about decolonial thinkers and scholars, a lot of our gaze is still on uh, the, the perspectives of those of us who are westernized whether we're in Europe, whether we're in North America or Canada or what have you, those are the scholars, the black scholars, if you like, who get elevated. Uh, The scholars who are developing similar scholarship in Africa, who are embedded in the communities, who understand the languages, Mm -hmm. and who, uh, you know, recognize some of the cultural continuities, as well as ruptures and breakages, then some of those scholars are not as well known. And in Parco, we have the benefit of utilizing not only some of the scholar activists and the thinking, but some of those who are also from communities who've experienced 
some of these same ruptures and who are struggling to kind of re-establish themselves and restore themselves uh, beyond these colonial borders. So I believe that from a Pan-African perspective, we have to also uh, decolonize our approach to African scholarship and African knowledge production, where we do not recognize those experiences uh, and we tend to just see and elevate our own in the diaspora. So that's what I would say to that. There is definitely a, a connection, but unless we engage with each other, unless we take the time to listen to each other and to also listen to the different experiences that we've had, but with a view to understanding the commonalities. And that is what we, I think, the movement in the UK, the, the movement for African reparations that we refer to as the international social movement for African reparations is very unique because we have been able to transcend many of these real ruptures and differences that have caused uh, separation, that have caused and resulted in alienation. alienation from self from family and from community and so when I talk about or when we refer to Afrophobia we do so because we recognize that we cannot just talk about a generic black experience uh, that actually the root of our dispossession is based on real African identity personhood, personality, culture and ethnicity, which was deemed to be a threat. That is why in chattel enslavement in the so-called Americas or Abiyala in the Caribbean, that is why it was made illegal for us to actually practice and live our culture. It was made illegal for us to keep our names, to keep our traditions, um, to, to continue to speak our languages. And despite the fact that it was made illegal, our people resisted. So they found ways to, to retain and reinvigorate and renew and develop new cultural forms that were still based on the old, still based on what we knew in our motherland, which is today called Africa. And so that is why it's important to recognize that African personhood, ethnicities, nationalities didn't totally disappear. And the more and more we learn or relearn and rediscover who we are, the more and more we, we, we go through that process of what's called ethnogenesis, which is where, if you like, a group comes to be born or reborn and uh, rediscovers original identities, original cultures, uh, original heritages, and, and looks at how they themselves maintain some of the remnants of, of those past uh, people and communities and experiences. So earlier you mentioned that it's important to not only point out the the ruptures but also the continuities basically what you just referred to. So can you speak more to that because I get the sense that you know you're not suggesting it's possible to recover sort of this authentic past but rather that it's important to know these histories for for a different reason. Can you speak more about that? Yes well sure. Um, some of the damage is so total that we will never be able to totally reconstruct the past. And in fact, this is why and where African knowledge systems and indigenous knowledge systems come into being. And even as a person of African heritage, who also can self-define as black, I have had to relearn 
and rediscover what is what are some of the ideas that my people have produced. So we think about and, and there's a there's a term. It's actually a West African Akan term called Sankofa. And Sankofa is represented by a bird that has its body going one way and its its you know its head is turned the other way. So it's really in order to move forward, we have to take the best from our past. And we carry those memories. It's born in us. Now I am an African, not because I was born on the continent of Africa, but because Africa is born in me born in me and that is the case for many of us who are in the diaspora we have these memories we have these recollections um, it's innate within our DNA and it's not something that we're necessarily socialized with in terms of our immediate families who may have uh, embraced a, a kind of more recent sense of identification whether it's Caribbean or black British or whatever it may be but some of us are born into these families that are socialized in a limited way in terms of our identity but yet we still know that there is more out there and we go out in search of it and so the Sankofa approach to nation building and reconstructing an African future is 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 recognizing that the Africa that is the African, I should say, that is to be, is not necessarily the African that we were in the past. Because when our people who were trafficked from Africa left Africa, they didn't necessarily leave with a, a sense of an African identity in the sense we use it today. Yes. They were specific people. They had specific ethnicities and nationalities, Yoruba, Eves, Fantes, Igbos, etc., etc. And so our experience of uh, being in the diaspora and of actually mixing and, and kind of losing, uh, temporarily losing some of these very specific identities has meant that we have been able to uh, learn from and blend with some of the other identities of other African peoples. So the, the version, say, of Pan-Africanism that we've particularly developed in the diaspora, which, which sees that we have this commonality, but it transcends so many different divides, national divides, ethnic divides, linguistic, cultural, religious and spiritual divides and identities. And we can see that as a, as a resource that we can then fashion a future that actually can incorporate much more of our experiences and our global experiences and the continuities of how we have evolved and shaped and renewed and reinvigorated our cultures to actually develop something that is, I think, far more powerful than perhaps we've even had in the past. So the notion of the future African that for us will inhabit Ma'atubuntuman, which will be an Africa that is free of these borders that were, you know, instituted with the 1884-1885 uh, Berlin um, Conference, then it will be an Africa that will recognise African polities and uh, nationalities and identities. And it will also be a home for many of us in the diaspora if we choose to physically live there 
or, or, or if not, I mean, you know, we have a notion in terms of our a sense of guarantees of non-repetition where an African person or person of African heritage who might self-define as black because they haven't yet or not comfortable even with accepting, say, African as a term, but they will have a right to belong and to benefit from uh, a citizenship and they can exercise global citizenship, global African citizenship, wherever we are, because our people have evolved and shaped culture wherever we are on the planet, and our bloodlines run through many other peoples today. So I think it's quite exciting to think about who we will be and, and what Africa uh, will be and what African identity will be in the future because it's not about necessarily the past but it's about building on the past and it's, a, it's how we can ensure we build on that past to guarantee our survival on planet earth and that of our children and our children's children. Thank you very much. Um, it's helpful to hear what the long-term vision is but I guess this relates to maybe the more challenging question of, of strategies and tactics, which I think you're uniquely situated to discuss uh, given your legal background. So what I wanted to ask was um, how you conceptualize the use of legal channels and, and their efficacy, um, whether through parliamentary inquiries or international law. Sure, well, <laughs> that's, that's a good one because uh, yeah, a lot of people, I think, uh, they, they have a default position around conventional legal strategies right. in tackling questions of reparations. Um, and of course, I speak very specifically in terms of the African experience of the International Social Movement for African Reparations. But there are some general principles that I think are relevant to other groups who have also experienced forms of enslavement mm -hmm. and colonization. So... Um, we utilise, in PARCO that is, and in the Stop the Angamizi We Charge Genocide campaign, we utilise a notion of law as resistance. And that is a specific approach and methodology of doing law that sees law as a tool not only of conquest and imperialism, but a tool that we can utilise towards our liberation. But in order to utilise that tool, it means that we have to go beyond existing law, existing notions of what is lawful, what is legal, what is right, what is just, because a lot of what we understand or overstand today to be lawful or legal is still as a result of colonialism. And we cannot think about repair without recognizing that we also have to repair the very notion of law that has been abused and misused as a form of lawfare, warfare using law against subjugated people, against oppressed people, against colonized people. And so for us, we, we approach the legal question from the perspective of law as resistance, which, which believes that uh, law has to be uh, implemented from below. Law has to be uh, transformed from the people who are most oppressed. And in fact, I, you know, I just think about a very standard definition of law from Karl Marx, and I'm paraphrasing now, but 
He said something like, law is basically the will of the ruling classes enacted into legislation. So for us, if we recognise the power dimensions in law, then we know that in order to transform law, including unjust law, we need to build people power in order to enforce and affect our will, what we call our national will, as distinct peoples and groups. So in the African uh, reparations uh, cause, and in the International Social Movement for African Reparations, we utilise uh, not only conventional law, but extra-legal strategies and tactics. And this is something that all oppressed peoples have to do. Uh, coming from the, the black experience, going through, say, black power, civil rights movement, the abolitionist struggles, anti-colonial struggles, we know that a lot of our resistance was criminalised, was demonised was considered, um, yeah, criminal activity. But we had to engage in those actions in order to free ourselves, liberate ourselves, and emancipate ourselves. And then through that process, what tended to happen is that it stretched the boundaries of what was considered possible, what was considered legal and just. And so the whole notion of human rights and people's rights has very much been informed by people breaking existing laws, norms and social codes around society and what society, the dominant groups in society, had determined, uh, you know, should be recognised or not recognised in terms of experiences. And in our particular strategies and tactics in the ISMAR, um, we utilise... Um, many different sort of strategies to, to achieving our goals of reparations. We do utilise uh, parliamentary strategies and extra-parliamentary strategies, legal and extra-legal, um, liberation struggle, um, uh, institutional strategies, community organising, all of them come into play. And we have two sort of main mechanisms that we are working with at this time. One is something called the APSITAGE, which is the All-Party Parliamentary Commission of Inquiry for Truth and Reparatory Justice. And the idea behind the APSITAGE, which is an initiative of the Stop the Ma'angamizi campaign, is that it is a uh, special commission of inquiry that is a people's commission of inquiry and that it would it would have testimonies from various African heritage communities black communities around the world who have been colonized by Britain okay so it is an important step towards uh, the courtroom of public opinion putting our narratives our perspectives, our histories and herstories of not only oppression but resistance, resilience and, and, and how we have come to survive. This is something that everyone else needs to know too because one of the, the, the barriers that we face is that many ordinary people think that slavery was something of the past, colonisation is something of the past, uh, you know, we should be grateful for, for British aid or European aid or what have you and they are miseducated deliberately 
and they are not told the truth about the history of the British Empire and its impacts and its continuing legacies. So that is why it's important for us to utilise something as a commission of inquiry, which is a, a legal process, but it's also a political process. And it's a way in which the wider public should be able to hear that testimony, should also be able to question those who are giving evidence as part of uh, the British public and the wider publics in Europe and other Western societies also having a say on repair processes. Now, that is one of the, the, the tactics that we utilise, but we also have another one, which is the Ubuntu Gotla, uh, People's International Tribunal for Global Justice. Now, um, Ubuntu Gotla is basically a combination of the term Ubuntu, which is a Southern African term that really speaks to um, our humanity, our common humanity. And it's sort of, uh, you know, the saying, we are people through other people. So it's a global justice approach, but an African perspective on that, recognising the commonality of the human family and that in order to emancipate ourselves, even as a specific group, we cannot do so in such a way that dispossesses or oppresses other people that our repair must also result in or inspire and catalyse the repair processes of other peoples. If not, none of us are safe. And then Gotla, which is a, a term uh, that it is a tribunal, if you like, in, in, in Botswana, the Gotlas. So Ubuntu Gotla is really a international tribunal that is made up of different justices uh, of, 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 you know, legal uh, scholars from colonised groups. And it would be a true international court because what is called the International Court of Justice is not really a true international court. And it is decolonial because it is initiated from below. It is initiated by those people who have not traditionally been considered knowledge producers in the realms of law. And this idea of this uh, Ubuntu Gotla is that all the groups, so Native Americans, Aboriginal people, um, Indigenous peoples, um, other peoples who've experienced European settler colonialism, genocide, war, terrorism, etc., and forms of dispossession would come together. And we would, but in, in that process, you're, you're, if you like, rebuilding you're reclaiming your right to name your experience, your right to shape law and make law and actually have uh, your people's overstandings and historical knowledges around what is law, what is justice, what is you know a good citizen, what is the good society, what does it mean um, to be a just person, that you bring into that process uh, your own people's experiences. So those are the two mechanisms that we are utilising and they are uh, conventional but they are also unconventional at the same time in that there are aspects of them that are based on uh, the best of uh, practice that we have now in terms of how you redress historical injustices but then they are also reparatory in that they are particularly shaped 
in a way that repairs the um, social exclusions and the epistemicide um, and the lack of recognition that we are peoples, especially colonised peoples, that we have our own ideas around what law and justice are. And what we are finding in the field of even what's called transitional justice, uh, which is a, a sort of field that looks at many of those societies and groups and communities that have, have been having, you know, dealing with uh, forms of historical injustice or specific modern-day contemporary injustices that affect whole groups. But what we're finding is that international tribunals or people's tribunals are a new, they're becoming or emerging to be a new legal norm, okay? A new legal norm that makes uh, uh, law more reachable for those who have been most dispossessed of their ability to shape and make and affect law in their own uh, best interests. So you mentioned uh, reparatory justice. Yes. So what does that actually look like in more concrete terms? Okay, so I guess the way I'd begin by answer that question is to look specifically at the movement that I'm part of because I cannot obviously say what reparatory justice will look like for all people because all people and every group that has experienced any form of oppression has to define for themselves um, in, in their own self-determined way and according to their own history and culture and knowledge systems. So from an African perspective uh, we talk about particular goals and Parco in particular has uh, conceptualized these uh, seven goals, not that there are goals, but we've just put them together in terms of a framework because the movement for African reparations didn't begin with us, didn't even begin with this generation. It began actually the first time an African was kidnapped off the shores of Africa. And so in that sense, we have to build on and we do build on and take from a lot of the reparations activism that African people have been engaging from the time we were first enslaved. Um, so these seven goals are to learn about, the first one being to learn about, to recognise and to stop the Ma'angamizi, which is the African Holocaust, including the horrors of enslavement, colonisation, neo-colonisation, recolonisation, which is occurring now, and other imperialist foreign impositions on Africans at home and abroad. And this actually includes forced uh, Europeanization and Arabization for African people. So it's very concrete in terms of what we're seeking to do with our reparations process. The second one is to counter Afrophobia as a manifestation of white supremacy racism, eradicating African dehumanization, and the assertion of an African personality. Part of the harm has been our even internalization as people of African heritage of an African identity. And I mean that in terms of the specific ethnicities and nationalities that our people emanated from, as well as the kind of more pan-African concept of a global African. The third being to restore African sovereignty by redressing with what we call Ma'atu Bundu Mandla, which is a pan-African government of people's power, the disrepair in our power. Because a lot of the things that have happened to us have come about because of our powerlessness. 
which is not innate in us, but that has been the result of, of, of course, um, historical oppression. And it's important, therefore, to usher in a fundamental change of the existing world order that would definitively bring about new geopolitical realities such as Ma'atubuntu Man, which is this uh, super state that I've mentioned before, Pan-African Union of Communities. So it's not based on countries, it's based on communities, ethnicities, nationalities within Africa, developing their own unions and then coming together in a Pan-African union of communities, okay? So it repairs the, the harms of, of those borders that separate family from family, ethnicity from ethnicity, nationality from nationality. And, and Ma'atu Buntu Man would be an anti-imperialist sovereign Pan-African Union of Communities and a polity of our African people's power. The fourth goal of our uh, African reparations process is to bring about system, systemic, I should say, global change to ensure the expropriation and redistribution of ill-gotten wealth, resources and income worldwide. Now clearly for a goal like that, we can't just do that by ourselves as Africans. And that is why we recognize that even to fully accomplish some of these goals, it will require also linking up with other people and groups who are also struggling for similar forms of systemic change. Yes, and that is why in the, the ISMA, the International Social Movement for African Reparations, we, we see ourselves as part of a broader movement that, is, that we refer to as the PRIM, the People's Reparations International Movement, which is basically all other people on the planet who are struggling to bring about transformative change, social, political, economic, cultural, environmental change. Um, the fifth uh, goal is to implement new paradigms of development, including uh, the ushering in of a new legal, political and international economic order. Again, another goal that cannot just be achieved by people of African heritage working by ourselves, have to be achieved in, uh, in concert with other peoples who are also um, not recognized, locked out of really benefiting from their own resources and uh, being denied um, true sovereignty. The sixth goal is to institutionalize Ma'at. Ma'at, the, the, the ancient Kemetan or uh, Egyptian ideal uh, around truth, justice and reciprocity, etc. And also Ubuntu uh, that I've also spoken about in terms of global justice for all. Now, at that, this is really important because a lot of repair processes uh, and a typical, exa typical example that I can't elaborate on, but say what's happening in terms of the Jewish question, Palestinian question. And the uh, notion of Jewish reparations being the, uh, the in, uh, settlement of uh, the initiation of the State of Israel and looking at the, the harm that that has caused yes. to not only Palestinians but other people in that region. So it's in, in terms of our African case, we do not believe that we can have reparations or repair or reparatory justice at the expense of other people. So it means that us reclaiming whatever it is we're entitled to should not result in the dispossession and the oppression of other peoples. That's not repair. That's something else. 
And so that's why the global justice aspects, and we see ourselves as mothers and fathers of human civilization, and whose bloodlines run through all peoples, it means that our vision and conceptualization of that repair must be far more expansive. It cannot be that the, the, the models, the pseudo forms of repair that have, have gone by in, in particular the 20th century that many people say, oh, well, they got theirs, why can't we get ours? No, that's not the kind of world that we want to build. We want to build a world that really does guarantee peace and security for all and, uh, and, and challenges us all to not become the oppressor, but to also be that change that we wish to see. And that is a key thing, because one of the things that these experiences of enslavement and colonization often do is that we adopt that oppressor mentality. And we have to also decolonize ourselves. We have to repair and eradicate some of that thinking and those actions towards others if we are to, to have a sustainable um, repair process. Now, the final one, the final goal for us is to enforce the environmental elements of global justice. And that would be um, ensuring that there is full respect for the, the rights of our Mother Earth. And, and we have an African conceptualization of that called Nana Asase Yarite. So Mother Earth, that, that the planet that basically sustains us is, is, is being harmed, is being exploited, is being raped and despoiled. And it's causing untold uh, damage. So there is a link between ecocide and genocide. Because when environments become unsustainable, the life of the people that, that live and, and rely on that environment also becomes under threat. And, and so those are the, the key goals for us in our repair process. And of course, there are many specific and concrete actions, but I'm, I'm pretty certain that when people hear about reparations for African people, um, that they don't necessarily hear these goals that the movement is working on and working in solidarity with other people who are also struggling and have their own repair process. They might not use that language of repair or reparations. They might be talking about sovereignty or, or something else. But we're finding commonality and common cause because we believe that the people are the power base. And we have to find ways to, to change hearts and minds and to influence many groups of peoples and to speak across realities and to learn from each other's experiences. That is the key thing. The knowledges that we're bringing into our struggle to repair and to restore and renew ourselves. So I wanted to close by asking if you had any remaining advice for young people in the movement. We do intend for this discussion to for this discussion to serve as a resource for young activists and others who want to be engaged? Yes, I guess my advice is, um, the first thing, education is preparation for reparations. Educate yourself, learn about struggles for reparations. Also recognize that struggles for reparations entail what is known as cognitive justice. The recognition that there are different knowledges out there so don't just start with what you know. Each group, each uh, you know, person, look into your own people, your own people's story, your own people's connection to reparations, because many peoples on this planet have experienced forms of historical and contemporary injustice. So begin to examine your own 
family lineages, your own family stories, your own family histories of resistance. Because who are we if we're not able to continue that which has also gone on before? If we're not able to pass on to future generations, um, if you like, that notion of identity, that notion of struggle, that notion of resistance and resilience. So that is one of the things I would say to younger people. Learn from your elders in the community. Learn from them. Doesn't mean that you accept everything that they say. Um, come with new ideas. Critically interrogate ideas um, that thinkers, that scholars, that activists, that liberators have brought before us. And also look at how you yourself can make a contribution to making the world a much better place, a much more beautiful place, and a much safer space. Um, you know, we are, um, I, even though I'm very involved with the struggle for reparations, I really do emphasize the Stop the Ma'angamizi um, campaign because it's such a holistic campaign. It, it, it kind of deals with so many of the injustices of today that we just rebel against. So police brutality, stop and search, um, but it also it deals with many other issues, such as menticide, um, the lack of uh, an effective curriculum that many of us are learning, or not learning, I should say, in the school system, in, in colleges and universities. It deals with the school-to-prison pipeline. It deals with um, deaths in custody. It deals with what's happening around the pollution of um, land, the pollution of food, um, the institution of nutricide and GMO and um, it deals with extractive industries, it deals with land grabs, austerity, uh, which is affecting many communities, even here in the UK and also internationally, Afrophobia, um, forced sterilisation, you know, different forms of violences. So I really do emphasise this campaign. And the other thing about it, which is really important, is that we focus on the fact that despite we have these uh, if you like, national struggles because of our ethnicity. There's also another struggle that is threatening our very survival on planet Earth, and that is the fact that much of the science is talking about possible extinction, not only of in, in, you know, the environment and um, animals and, and so forth, but I mean human extinction, because many of those who are ruling society today are doing so without regard to futures and young people's futures in particular. So the struggle against ecocide, the killing and destruction of our mother earth, yes? So yes, we have our, our mother lands wherever we come from, but then we have a, a bigger mother, which is mother earth that really sustains all life on the planet. And so younger people today, I think have a huge responsibility a huge responsibility to, to help continue that legacy of freedom fighting to safeguard all of our futures. And we're so hopeful for the younger generation because you have access to so much knowledge and information that previous generations didn't have access to. You have access to forms of technology which sometimes can be misused, but the way in which you use it 
um, can be used for good. So I would say, whatever it is that you're doing, find your connection to social movements, to political struggles, to movements that are about trying to bring about change, big change, and rebel. <laughs> I say rebel, but rebel with a cause. Don't, um, this is not a call to rioting, this is a call to organized resistance. And where necessary, organize non-violent civil disobedience. Because the only way that we're going to guarantee the changes that we all need to see and that benefit all of us as members of the human family is if we resist um, the excesses of capitalism, of corporatism, of the dehumanization, not only of our own group, but also other people's. So rediscover your humanity and learn from other people's learn from other people's struggles and take what you can but ensure that you become a warrior and a freedom fighter for change that's what i would say to young people thank you for your time thank you so um, we've been in conversation with esther stanford cosse an internationally acclaimed reparationist, jurist consult, and community activist. And we will have a number of conversations lined up after this one as part of the Genocide Memorial Day project. Mm -hmm.